This presentation is from Service Design Canberra 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Our next presentation. Our next presentation is going to look at how to make the artifacts of design more actionable. Uh, talking about toolkits and frameworks. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Sarah from Westpac and Karina from Melt Studios. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Can everyone hear me? My mic's facing the wrong way. Um, I'm Sarah, as Steve says, and this is Karina. And today we're going to talk about um, design artifacts that last way beyond the delivery date, um, frameworks that provide a foundation for customer-centered transformation, and toolkits that support people in design. We're talking about the tip of the rainbow transformation cake as shared with by Jess. Um, and I um, just wanted to find out who you were in the spirit of customer centricity. So um, hands up if you're a hands-on practitioner in the audience. Most people. Hands up if you're in-house. Agency. Other. <laughs> okay, cool. Thank you for that. So Karina and I have been working on these kind of initiatives for about three years on and off. And earlier in the year we started to realise when we were reflecting on what we've been doing that there's some commonalities and we thought maybe we should share some of the uh, pleasure and pain we've been through to save you the effort. Um, so I guess when we're thinking about design artifacts, often we focus on the capabilities and the solutions that are being delivered. What we're suggesting in order to lengthen the life cycle of the artifacts that we focus on, the problems we're trying to solve and the intent behind the service experiences. In that sense, they become a reference book and uh, they become boundary objects to align people's thinking. Oh, oh, yeah, sorry, it's, it looks different. Yeah. Okay, sorry, it's been updated. I didn't recognise it. So what we're going to cover today is... <laughs> she's ahead of the game. Um, so what are the factors that surface the need for these kind of toolkits? Yeah, that's organisationally and externally. Um, what are the elements within the toolkits that we would recommend using? The people and processes that make it happen. And then how are the artefacts being used now in the organisation in the wild a year on? And then we'll cover key takeaways. So why, the why of these toolkits? Um, we've talked a lot about change today. Um, change is constant, it's getting faster, we're all used to that environment in somewhat at the moment, but dealing with it is an interesting thing when you're working in a really big organisation. Um, we've talked about the fact that you know it's complex, so there's lots of choice, the way that we're playing and doing work is different all the um, right now. Um, there's lots of technological innovation. So for Sarah, you know, the way people are making payments, they're going through intermediaries now instead of going direct with the bank. So there's change in the way that people are behaving in this space. There's also some really interesting things that are happening in terms of trust. So if we think about these changes, I mean, I got here this morning in a car, driven by a person I didn't know and I've never met, and I probably will never met again. Now, would I have done that a year ago? I don't know. So we're trusting different mechanisms now. And also we're having more direct relationships with service providers. So I think about Instagram, I actually am talking direct with people who I buy paintings from and get services from. So the way we're actually dealing with business and the trust we have in these different businesses is changing. 
And all of that gets wrapped up in, our ch- in changing our expectations. So the expectations of things getting faster. We have a, a world of instant gratification now. And what that means for organisations are they have to get better at responding to this. They have to get better at changing their business to actually meet those needs of those customers, those changing needs of customers. And to do that, they actually need to understand them. But one of the things that we kind of grapple with on a day-to-day is are the decision-makers actually really understanding their customers? Sometimes they're quite distanced from the people they're actually making decisions for, and that can be very dangerous. And so we know a lot of designers understand their customers because we're actually in the world of that every day. But do the decision-makers. So um, from an internal perspective, Westpac has a great vision, which is to be one of the world's greatest service companies to help customers prosper and grow. And as a, somebody who works in customer experience and service design, that's something I can really buy into. But how do we actually make that happen? So there's a big gap between that aspiration and then there's a whole heap of people trying to get stuff done and move widgets. And then there's people like us trying to be customer-centric. So there was a kind of a bit of a yawning need for an overarching customer view. So um, that's where... Karina and I started to collaborate and develop a um, framework to deliver overarching customer needs and ex- expectations. I guess when you're working in an organisation like Westpac, it's silo city, and so you need that kind of horizontal view that brings people together. Oh, it's me again. Um, so I guess um, the original intent of the work that we've been doing was to tra- transform service experiences and then to be able to measure the success based on the outcomes but what it's actually done is brought people together from all those different silos to get a shared understanding of the customer needs and expectations. And it's interesting because given that actual original intent or that brief, at the beginning, true to the design process, we didn't know what that would look like. Many of the stakeholders that we were working with had their own ideas of what they needed, but it was an interesting process and we're going to talk about actually getting to the fact of actually creating a framework and a toolkit, something that people could actually use rather than put on a shelf and forget about until the next team came around and did something like that again, which is what we've seen happen a lot in organisations and we wanted to get something that actually was reusable by people. So what do these toolkits actually do? Um, the main purpose of the... And we've created three of these in the organisation that, that talk to different levels. The first one is very much holistically customer-centred across the entire customer base of the organisation. The next one deals with a particular customer subset. And the, other, the third one actually deals with a particular service set. So we've actually been evolving these over time and extending them. What, the first, what it actually does is helps you understand what's known. So... Um, Marissa and and Jackie actually talked about the fact that there was a lot of existing research in the organisation and yet we actually went out and did research again and found the same things again. Organisations do this all the time. They actually, it's too hard to kind of find out what's been found out before, so we actually start again. And that's a big cost to the organisation, a waste of resources. Um, There's also no shared view of that. So research exists in silos or in teams or in projects and it's often not dug out again. So it's actually very hard for people to see what we actually understand. Then from that, how do we actually identify opportunities? If research exists in silos or findings exist in silos, how do we actually clearly identify what's actually need? Where do the opportunities lie if we don't have a comprehensive understanding of the customer need? Then the idea of being able to develop and test ideas from this. So not only can you look at the opportunities, but how do we actually go back and measure whether what we're creating really fits the customer need without actually going back out to the customers? How can we short-track short that process before we actually go out again? 
And then a shared language to be able to communicate those ideas. So I've come up with an idea. It might fit in the context of this part of the customer journey, in this part of what they're doing, but I actually talk about it in the holistic environment and system of the customers dealing with. So I can place my idea in context of everything else. And that's really important if we're going to actually create joined-up services. Um, yeah, having that shared understanding of the customer means we're all designing towards the same goal. So the elements of the frameworks and the toolkits essentially are these seven components here. We've got the customer life cycle, the key customer types, principles and guidelines, which we're going to talk about, um, the examples of the guidelines brought to life, and the humanising variables, and the experience within the system. So they're kind of the parts where we understanding. The next part is the doing. So how do we actually take what we, what we know and put that into a set of simplified design tools that can be used across the organisation? So this is sort of a framework for the frameworks that we've actually developed over time. So where we actually started was looking at actually what the, um, the organisation knew about the customer. And one, just one particular framework that we put together, which was one of the subsets of the big one, we actually looked at 53 pieces of research. Now, that's 53 pieces that we could find. We probably I think that number grew over time as well. I think they kept on, towards the end of the project, kept on feeding more research. Like, okay, stop, please. Thank you. How are you going to use 53 pieces of research when you start a new project? How much time would it take to even look through those? Who would actually know where they existed? It's almost impossible. And that is such a waste of time and money for an organisation. So we actually synthesised these 53 pieces actually into a one-pager, which is a big poster that can sit on anyone's wall. And it seems so simple. The process was not simple to get 53 down to these sort of six columns. But essentially what it actually contains is... The, it's a consolidated view of that internal research. It contains the phases of the customer journey. So it's a bit abstracted here because this is more a template. But actually, a lot of people deal in a silo of the customer journey. I know about this part. I know about the awareness part. Or I know about the sale part. But I don't necessarily have a comprehensive view of the entire customer journey. So we actually brought that to life here in these six, in these six phases. Um, then we actually have the customer goals. So what are the customers doing and thinking and feeling? And Sarah's going to talk a little bit about context because it's not just what they're doing, but it's where they're doing it and how they're doing it. It's really important. So we had a really synthesised version of that. What are their key pain points at each phase of the journey? What would that future experience be like? So if a customer actually said and articulated what that future experience might be like, what might they say? So what we actually created was kind of fake customer quotes about what their experience might be like in their words from the future. We also had some, um, some principles, which were what's important to the customer at each of these phases, and we got that down to a word. One example is expertise. So at this phase of the journey, if I'm looking to um, sign up for a new banking product and I'm a bit confused about the space, I'm looking for the expertise of the banker to actually guide me through that journey. We also looked at the outcomes for distinct customer types. So while we have a general need that goes through a potentially a, a sort of a basic persona, as, you might, as Sarah might talk about in Westpac, there's actually maybe some differences for some distinct needs. So we actually pulled those out and called them out because that's really important actually to cater for those parts of, the, um, parts of those customer journeys as well. Then we had the um, design principles and then importantly links to existing research. So that existing research didn't get lost. If people wanted to go back and look at key insights that happened in that parts of the journey, we actually pointed them to make links to go back there so they can dig deeper if they need to. 
And the last one is gaps in the research. So even with 53 or 73 or 153, there's going to be gaps in what you know. We actually identified and call those out. So as project comes, teams come in new and are looking at this, they actually know where to spend their time and effort and money. So we did some further projects on with this and we actually pulled our research down to even a number of days because we said we just need to focus on X, Y and Z because they're the parts that we don't know. So that's really a, a view of the, the kind of highest level part of the, the, um, the toolkit. Then for each subphase, we created a much more detailed um, analysis of what's, what's going on. So teams can actually take these pages and start to work with them as tools. So just on the, the fact that that looks quite simple based on the fact it was 53-plus pieces of research, I sent someone, a stakeholder asked me for a copy of it. I sent it to him and he said... Have I got this right? This is a, a nine-page thing. I'm like, yeah, no, it is. It takes a lot of work to be this simple. Um, so for key customer types, as Karina was saying, you really need to understand what you want your focus to be customer-wise. You can't boil the ocean. Westpac's got a lot of diverse customers. So how do you approach that? And I think one of the things you were just saying, Karina, is about when you go and talk to customers, you understand there are a universal set of needs and a baseline of needs that you can apply to the end-to-end -end experience, and then you look at where are their differences and who, what do you need to focus on? Are we focusing on new customers, existing customers, customers looking to switch, customers in hardship? Um, another way of focusing the attention when you're looking at customer focus is using personas. So we might use a persona. We've got a persona called Chris who represents 80% of all customer needs. Um, so you could use Chris, and that's a human face who's got a story that then focuses people on the customer. Um, the other thing around this is those distinctive needs. So when we think about, for example, banking, we have customers who are brand new to the bank. They've never actually, potentially they may even be children who've never actually banked with a bank before. If we think about business customers, we have customers that come in who might have been just starting a business new and they're about to launch into business banking potentially and they have no idea what that means, let alone all the other things that are going on in starting a business. So we actually started to drill down into these distinct customer needs and actually summarise what, what they're thinking, feeling and needing to happen or doing so that those particular areas of the business dealing with those customers have a, have a way to actually tap into that understanding. So this slide also um, brings the customer close to the, to the conversation as well. So these principle, principles and guidelines are developed through customer research. So um, going out and talking to customers, themes develop, and then you create a set of principles, which is what they're telling you they need from a bank. Um, and we generally, I think with about six or seven principles that we've got for this particular piece, um, do what you say you'll do. Um, it's quite high level. So you need those guidelines to drill down a bit more. So what does that actually mean to the customer? Um, and then we, um, to make it even more tangible for people who, um, like um, non-design folk, might need to, to, a picture of what that means. So let's put a concept in front of them. This is what it might mean to a customer. But because we're developing frameworks here, we don't really want to have anything too high fidelity because... Um, stakeholder might say, well, let's go and build it tomorrow. It looks like you've already done the design. No, this is not where we're at in the design process. We're just creating a framework. Yeah, and the stakeholders love to grasp onto anything that seems tangible. So we 
did as much as possible to stay away from the tangible. We fought against it actively because it was like, now what does that mean? Mm. And that's where the design process comes in after this is you have to work out that. The interesting thing about these guidelines is this is the thing that's about being actionable. So you should be able to actually, from the guidelines, start to design from them. So they should be guiding your design, but then also using those guidelines to come back and measure. So did what we design give me confidence that you have followed through with my action or request? If it didn't, why not? Maybe that's an area we need to look at. So we'll talk a bit... I'll get onto the toolkit part of it in a minute, but, but we had to be very specific about making sure that these were concrete and could be used. And it's really important in terms of the language that you use that, that actually comes to, um, to fruition. So this, um, this slide's for Diane, contextual lenses. Um, so uh, bringing the customer close to um, the design process, what we're looking to do is... Um, Think about the variables that the customer might be experiencing when they're in any given context. Um, we've got location in there. I mean, maybe we should say travel as well. Um, but uh, So a couple of examples in banking that we might think about different emotional contexts or variety would be I transfer money into my savings account after every payday. That's twice a month on the mobile, on the bus. It's not very emotional. Uh, it's, I want it to be quick and easy. In fact, it probably could be easier. And then we have the, I've lost my credit card. This has never happened to me. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know who to contact. How do I find out what I'm doing? Those two things happen to our customers every day, and they're quite different, but they are very different emotional variables. Mm. So it's important to keep those things in mind. And how actually we had people use these was with the services that we were designing, they were designing, we actually had them map them against this. So what is high emotion versus low emotion? High complexity versus low complexity. And you started to add um, variables on a scale to these. So you can actually really understand what you're designing for because not all services are created equal when you actually apply these human variables to it. And that's what we called them, the, the humanising variables mm-hmm. as part of it. Um, you know, things that I'm doing all the time, I, get, I repeat so they're easy for me, whereas if I'm doing them every six months, like actually notify of overseas travel, somebody will just get on the phone because I can't find it in the app, it's just too hard, and that's where the call volumes go up. Um, or things like, I actually need to close the accounts because someone close to me has died. Well, I hopefully don't do that very often. So how do I actually go about that? And that's a high emotion thing. So I need to be sensitive to the situation. It's quite complex. There's a lot of accounts involved. So that's a very, very different service that we're designing there to something in terms of transferring the money across. The next one is around customer experience in the system. And I think it's for most of us in this room, this is a no-brainer. But it's really interesting that what we find is often people are designing from the... Um, widget or the interaction out rather than the outside in. So in all of those silos, people are really busy getting on with design work of the things, this is my job, this is my target, I've got to design this new part of the app or I've got to design this little part of the branch experience or I'm going to create a new tool for a, a branch manager or a banker but they're not actually thinking about where that service fits within a system. So this is a diagram that Meld had created a number of years ago that was just simply starting to think about when you design about something, think about where it actually fits within that system. So you might be designing a touch point, and it's a key moment of the interaction. 
it actually fits in with a broader experience that that customer is actually having. For example, if I'm going to be travelling overseas, I might actually order a new card, um, something that gives me you know, low interest or, or free tra- foreign transactions. I might be notifying of overseas travel, therefore I might need to be text about something. I might be actually buying travel insurance, which is another part of the bank already. And what happens here is people have these disjointed experiences all the time. I was doing research last week um, with a guy, and one of the participants actually said to me about the organisation we're working for. He said, I knew the um, structure of the organisation by the way they handled my call. So apparently on the call, every part of the, the business that he talked to said, oh, I'm this part of the business and you'll need to speak to that other part of the business. Now, this wasn't a massive company, but they're so siloed and almost culturally aligned to those silos, they're not thinking about that customer moving through that experience. I also had a conversation with Amy the other day. So I have a couple of my insurances with Amy and I wanted to check on and making sure that they're all okay because some are coming up for renewal. I spoke to three different parts of Amy who actually expressly told me that they couldn't tell me the policy number of my car insurance and my home insurance and my landlord insurance together because they are all separate parts of the business. So they'll need to put me through. In some instance, I'm actually going to have to ring a separate number. After about 15 minutes, I was getting quite angry. And as a service designer, you're like, this is so annoying. But this is, this is normal in organisations. So it's really important for the people who are making decisions to understand that there are these types of interactions that customers are having and it, it's, it's back of house, front of house, it's the entire experience that you're designing for. So try not to design in silos. So the next part, that's all the understanding. So they're all tools that we actually help the organisation have a more comprehensive understanding of their customer and a more holistic view of what they're designing. What we actually then did is create a set of simplified design tools um, for the organisation to use to start to think about applying everything that they learnt into designing their own services. Now, these are a bunch of canvases, um, as Jess showed us one this morning. There are many of these types of things out here, but we expressly designed them for Westpac with the principles and all of the learnings that we'd actually taken embedded in them so people didn't have to go and find something separate. Um, what, the, what they've been designed to be is democratic and in a way that they are a bit Fisher-Price. So they're not necessarily designed for designers, although designers do use them in Westpac. We wanted non-designers to start thinking about designing services in a human-centred way for their customers. So they were used by, essentially designed to be used by non-designers in the company as well. Um, they're also used to start to have the right conversation. So let's start talking from the customer in rather than the widget out. So we actually enable people to use these in workshops just as discussion tools to put them up the wall to say, let's think from the customers first, let's not necessarily think from the KPI first or the business goal first. So the the main elements of these, the top one here is capturing their own current state service journey experience. So this is where we gave them some very quick pointers about actually how to go out and talk to customers, start with the toolkit, but then create some additional um, complexity and nuance based on some customer interaction. So you you could see here that they sort of hand draw and hand write onto these types of things. Um, We also had editable PDFs for them to use as well. And they also um, (coughs) captured in here not only customer interactions, but staff interactions and system interactions as well, so they had a complete view. The next one is how they can actually use the principles to transform that service. So here where we saw the smiley face started and it went down, customer not feeling so great at that point in time. 
How can we actually use the principles to redesign that service? So if we think about use what we know about you or use what you know about me, mm-hmm. what do, how does that apply to the experience that we're trying to, to design? So we actually had them thinking about that from a principal experience. The next one down the bottom is, okay, well, based on that, what would that future state experience be? So it's the remapping of that future state in a very simplified way. And I think the most important part of this then is the enablers. What does Westpac need to do in order to enable that experience to come to life? Now, the first thing organisations tend to do at this point in time is actually think about, great, we need to create a new tool and we need to create a new process. Tool usually comes first, mm-hmm. actually. Um, and training. And training. Um, because essentially digital um, transformation is much easier than the other things that we're talking about and that's the bedrock that Jess talked about today which is culture and structure but what we actually did in this is actually saying we broke that up into those four areas so they couldn't ignore it what do we need to do from a tool perspective great we've got some great digital um, things going on both for customers and potentially for staff what are the processes we need to change but oh my goodness what if we start to talk about things like KPIs how might they need to change? Or why do we have a three different contact centres with three different ways of working that three, deal with three different customer bases, but that customer is actually all the same person? I might be a, a personal banking customer and a small business customer, and I might be constantly transferring money in between those two places. Shouldn't we actually think about them as the same person and potentially if they make a call to the call centre, if they really have to, that they're dealt with on the spot there and then rather than having to be transferred to the business banking side and then the consumer banking side? So um, we actually got them to really start to think about how they might have to change those parts. And that's tough. That's tough thinking. Um, we actually saw a number of these canvases where those parts had been left blank because it's like, oh, we don't want to touch that. It wants to be the elephant in the room. That's the thing. <laughs> So, who's involved? Um, often with these pieces of work, as soon as people catch wind of something going on related to this, everyone wants to get involved. This is a picture of us having a design jam, by the way. So, the CX team have design jams every Thursday for two hours where anyone can come along and we solve design problems, but that was working on one of these pieces. So, um, I guess everyone wants to be involved in this kind of thing because it's exciting, we're learning about customers and so on, and... With stakeholders coming into this from different silos and different areas of the bank, they've all got different agendas. So someone who works in the contact centre is going to be worried about the number of calls they're getting. Branch people are going to be interested in selling stuff through the branch, and digital are just trying to get everyone using digital. So sometimes they aren't sharing the same intent, but you've got to get them to focus on what's the intent of this experience that we're trying to create and this service journey. Um, So getting that alignment can be difficult. Um, And... People do bring their agendas, so someone might say, I want a vision, but I know it's going to be a hub on our website, but I need what the customer-centred vision is of that hub on the website. So we might have to act as a translator and say, well, when you say hub, what is it about a hub that you want? Maybe we shouldn't talk about it as a hub, because it might be something different. Let's not narrow our options. So um, I guess my role in all of this um, uh, kind of work, when I work with Karina, is I'm a bit of a broker, so I've got the the needs of the business on one side, and... Karina, an agency representing the voice of the customer, and I've got to sort of maintain the integrity of both parties so that the business gets what they need, but the voice of the customer is maintained, and it is quite a challenge sometimes, uh, and it involves drinking alcohol in the evenings after work sometimes. (laughs) Um, I guess, so, 
In order to manage those stakeholders from diverse backgrounds, it's about fostering a collaborative environment. So if someone comes along and says, I want a hub, you don't say no. You say, yes, and. Um, so you've got to build trust and, and get that collaboration happening. We don't all think the same. And I guess we have to use coaching skills to manage our stakeholders. Mm, yes. And Karina's actually, um, you call yourself a corporate therapist, isn't yes, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well, and I think that um, I really liked how Marisa and Jackie talked this morning about the process. I mean, these are strategic design pro uh, projects where if we're thinking about a customer-centred vision for Westpac as an organisation, you can imagine the stakeholders involved in that and you can imagine the agendas involved in that and often they're really wanting to get an outcome really quickly and that's where Sarah talked about the hub. People came to this project with, I want a thing. And we had to resist that the entire way through this project because we could have delivered a vision for things, but that wasn't necessarily going to get, help the organisation ultimately understand the customer and ultimately be flexible about how they deliver to those needs. Because as soon as you express a thing, that thing happens and the need is almost forgotten about until that thing no longer works and fulfil that need or gets implemented and never fulfils the need in the first place. So we had to really make this a concrete thing that they could actually create design against and measure against in terms of their tools. So it was a, an interesting design process. Um, these projects are very messy. So when we think about all those conflicting needs um, and actually taking people through a design process at this level for the first time in their career, they're like, what is this post-it note world that you're going to take me through? What do you mean there's no, today we're doing this, the next, in next week we'll see this, and the week after we'll see that. So Sarah and I, over the years, have built up a lot of trust with each other, as, which is good. But yes, therapy plays a big part of it, because there's two parts to projects like this. There is the, we're getting towards creating something that you're going to need to take your business forward, and we also need to take you through this process, which is not going to feel comfortable, because you're not going to agree with each other. You're not going to necessarily want the same thing at the beginning and in the middle of this project and maybe not even at the end, but we, we trust that we're going to get the right outcome for you. So that's where the therapy comes in. And I guess there's been a couple of points. I think when we realised that there was commonalities is there's always a point in the process where there's a room full of stakeholders and no one's agreeing and it feels terrible, but you have to get over it. And it's like <laughs> the dark night of the soul. You know, it's that classic thing that happens in the design process where you're like, this is never going to... Oh, my God. Um, but, yeah, so we got through that. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. And I think in terms of what Sarah is saying, us holding the, um, the customer experience at the forefront, we had to stay true to the intent. There were so many times on a project like this where you could be swayed back to designing the thing or the vision for the thing, but that's not what we were there to do. And that can feel very, very uncomfortable. And I know what that feels like from an in-house perspective because I've been there before as well. And it's such a fight that you need to have with yourself every day to say, I'm not going to be swayed. I'm still going to keep going forward. I know you guys have had that experience, and many of us in the room have. Um, so it's, it's an interesting thing to talk about in projects like this. Just on that point, for example, with our customer principles, some stakeholders were trying to add their own principles that they liked, and we're like, the customer didn't say that. <laughs> so stay true to the customer, not you. <laughs> okay, so um, what to watch out for in the process? Um, I guess... One of the key things is how you set these things up. So if you set it up well, it's more likely to run well. And there's three key things for me uh, in setting up. So before anyone gets involved and before you've even worked out what the brief is, you need to have a good framing question or a statement or a how might we. Uh, and that's something that takes you through the life cycle of the project. Um, 
So I would call that your north star. It can turn into your elevator pitch, but it's just a short, sharp statement like how might we humanise digital experiences in an increasingly complex world or something like that. Um, so the other aspect is governance. So when you're working with a, different, a strange and diverse set of um, stakeholders, um, more and more will come out of the woodwork. So you need to work out who is the core group of people that are actually going to guide this and who are just the hangers-on and who you need to listen to. The other one is operating rhythm. So we've worked on some really short, sharp projects that maybe just last four weeks, so you need to have your operating rhythm set up straight away. So, you know, are we meeting up once a week, twice a week, every morning? What's the rhythm that you need to have it set and ready to go? And I think that's particularly important with pieces like this where we didn't necessarily know we were going to create a framework or a toolkit at the beginning. So as a four-week project goes on, things change very quickly every day and your direction's moving in and out. So we need stakeholders to be coming in and seeing what we're doing. Um, very, very often, otherwise we'll get to the end and they were like, what is this toolkit thing you created? We wanted a vision for a hub. Yes. <laughs> um, so we, it's almost forcing that. Part of actually doing that is actually um, making sure that we externalise our thinking and it's another thing that um, uh, these guys said around that you don't want it to be too polished too early. Um, you can actually see on the wall here we have um, diagrams, that are, things that are layered out. We had paper on the wall. It was messy. There's even a chicken on there. I don't know what we're talking about. I think that's actually supposed to be a swan that looks elegant but swimming furiously. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, and these are the things that we showed stakeholders on a daily basis. So they weren't polished, they weren't finished, they were thinking. And we actually forced them to engage with that because if it looked too finished, they're like, yep, that's done, I don't like it. Or, yep, that's done, I like it, let's move on. Um, so we had lots and lots of rough things going at this point in time. And what it meant is these people are really busy. I mean, sometimes they're going to walk past at 7 o'clock in the morning when we're not there. So it needs to be somewhere near where they are so they can actually engage with it on an ad hoc way. And it doesn't necessarily need us to be there to explain it all the time. Um, now, one of the things with toolkits and these frameworks, it's really, really important to understand your customer. So lots of that research that we took and synthesised was great, it's great because it helped us build up a really comprehensive view in, of the customer in a simple way. But the other part in terms of making it actionable is we need to understand what people are, who are going to use these things need. So the ultimate... Um, reason for these frameworks and toolkit is not to just create them, it's to create them to be used. So we spent a lot of time and did a lot of design jams actually working with the end users, potentially people who are business analysts or even um, your design team as well. Mm -hmm. But we even had people who had no sort of inkling of design whatsoever. So they might be coming up with parts of the strategic vision. And we actually jammed these toolkits with them and iterated on them so it would be something that they could use and find useful. We got them to practice using them with projects that were going on during this design process so we could see where principles did work in the way that they're framed and where they didn't work. So it's really important to test these with the people who are going to use them as well. So as part of preparing for this presentation, we went out and spoke to the people that we uh, knew were using it and we found out about some other people that were using some of the toolkits we were created, which is quite satisfying. So... The kind of people that have been using it are people who are doing content strategy, product owners, as well as UXs and CXs and so on. So how they've used those tools, um, st strategic direction. So by their very nature, the deliverables are service-focused. So that means that people who are using them have a service focus. They're not thinking about the little bit that they're designing. They're thinking about the end-to-end -end experience, which is a great outcome. 
Uh, it's also being used to align minds when you're having conversations about what, what you're going to achieve in a project. For design folk, it's a solid start, so I don't have to go out and talk to customers because I can already understand what their needs are across the life cycle. And those elements that we've created, they can reuse to, to create journey maps as well. Uh, and then measurement, measurement. So while I'm designing, am I doing the things that the guidelines have told me to do? And afterwards, um, you can use it to tell people not to do certain things on interfaces too. <laughs> yeah, I think some things have been shut down because there was yeah. a, it doesn't actually match the, match the guidelines. They're a stick. <laughs> so this is an example um, given to me by... It's a bit embarrassing, I'm sorry. It's a bit uh, by a product owner who, had to, who was charged with changing the uh, content on the support for customers. Um, this is St. George, lost or stolen credit card. So the before, what you're looking at there is probably what the bank thinks everyone needs to know about co uh, credit cards in general, ever. And then <laughs> after is actually what you actually need to know from a customer experience perspective when you are in the moment and you've, had, you've lost your card. So I think you'll agree that's a win for the customer. Yep, great use of the toolkit. Um, these are sort of guerrilla shots we've taken where we've seen it actually used. Um, this was a blueprint piece that was actually going on and you can see that the team here working have actually cut pieces out of it and stuck it, used it to help them understand the phases of the customer journey and then are using it as framing those, guiding and framing those parts of that design. Um, it's really interesting that this team actually had, many of this team had no experience with this particular customer set when they walked into the project and they actually said within a couple of days because of that toolkit and that synthesised research they could actually get up to speed in terms of starting to do ideation. So that's really amazing when you think about before what would have happened is actually they would have gone out and done more research. They may have done some desk research which is reading through the existing research but would they have read through 53 pieces in two days? and done all their customer research. Mm. I don't think so, because I can't do that, certainly. It's not physically possible. No, it's not physically possible. So it, played, it provided a really good starting place from which to actually bounce and launch into that ideation process. Um, and the other thing you can see here, this was a photograph of what they, uh, when I came back and had a look, that they'd used it for measurement as well. So they took the toolkit and they went through it with a highlighter and they said, this is where our experience that we've designed meets the guidelines and this is where we've missed out or we've actually missed the mark. So it was really great to see people using it to go back and actually... Um, check what they've done and they did this before they went out and did customer testing because what they said is this will actually help us do one iteration faster than actually going out and organising research and testing um, to, to do that as initially. So it was a great thing they said it really fast-tracked the experience. So we're just going to show you some very quick video clips of people I who were involved in the creation. The, process. Oh, the reason I started. loved the process of creation was because it was a true collaboration between various subject matter experts within our business. Everyone had an area of expertise that they brought to the table. We were able to share our expertise, um, iterate um, in terms of moving the toolkit forward and refine as we went through the process. So I first used the me toolkit when I joined um, Westpac and it was great to have a, a holistic view of our customers journey specifically for uh, business uh, it helped set the tone with our key stakeholders as a conversation tool um, trying to, to map it out from end to end and put our project in context and um, so to me it's it's a great artifact because it um, it told me about the customers, but also what we as 
as a bank need to um, focus on in terms of what what to deliver to the customer. And this is where the um, service framework has been really useful for us. We're able to communicate as a team um, a consistent voice on what those uh, principles are, and then. Um, facilitate workshops and ideation sessions with stakeholders to um, uh, create opportunities to deliver on those, um, on those guidelines and principles. Uh, then, much further into the project, uh, it was a way to um, refer back really and see whether, uh, after going through multiple rounds of, of prototyping and iteration, um, was a benchmark really to see where we landed was still true to uh, the, the capabilities and the customer needs defined by the toolkit. Um. So some final thoughts to leave you with which are kind of what we've already said. So have a clear guiding statement. It's going to help in that ambiguous, ambiguous start. Um, Focus on the need or the problem, not the solution. If you focus on the solution, then you will be uh, having a, an artifact that is last year's news. Um, identify who your influencers, disruptors, and so on are with your stakeholder group um, and use their powers for good. Don't say no, say yes and. And establish an operating rhythm. Um, the next one is something we learnt the hard way, which is if something doesn't feel right, call it out. Um, we had many moments where we came out of rooms with multiple stakeholders and Sarah and I looked at each other like, oh, it doesn't feel good. We left it for two days and that's not good because we were two days behind and then another two days behind actually fixing that. So call it out when something doesn't feel right and it will happen in this sort of very complex problems spaces. Um, make the process visible. So commandeer a wall or a space where you can keep putting up your thinking so stakeholders who don't necessarily have to, time to engage in a formal way can engage in it some way and actually have the um, opportunity to give input. Um, stay true to the customer voice. So as I said, it's very easy to get sidetracked into the solution, but in this case it, it wasn't necessarily helpful. We had to stay with the intent and actually getting that customer's voice across. Um, human needs change frequently, but aim for timeless artefacts. So we know with the change that there are a lot of surface needs that customers have that are going to change. So, But underlying, human needs don't actually change that often if we talk about the core needs. And that's what we were aiming to capture in the toolkit. So that even a year on, or hopefully a couple of years on, um, that those artefacts actually still remain true and useful for people. But in saying that, have a plan for post-artefact delivery. Um, as I said, um, Needs stay the same, but sometimes things do need to be iterated on, so they should be able to keep, keep, keep up to date. So we've been playing with things like making this digital so people can keep adding their research to it or having some kind of ownership over it so it's somebody's job to potentially keep these things up to date, a champion. Um, also a plan for distribution. So how do people find out that this type of thing is available? How do you actually communicate it out into the organisation so it does get used? I mean, I think for us it's been lucky because it's been handed round to various people, but it'd be great if that could be made formal in, in some way. And the last one is simplicity. Um, I think that the, one of the real values to something like this is that it wasn't 550 pages of customer research. It was posters and um, templates and things that people could actually use and engage with in a really quick way. Um, it's tricky to get that balance right because you don't want it to be so simplified that it, it's not usable. But if you get that balance right, it's going to be something of value. Thank That's you. it. Thanks.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Service Design Canberra 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.